Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. Hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a big show today, so let's get right at it. A little bit later on, Rebecca Ferguson. She is one of the stars of the big, splashy, new version of Dune that will be in theaters next weekend. She'll stop by to tell us about her role as Lady Jessica in this much-anticipated movie. First up, though, I want to tell you about a new documentary. No Responders Left Behind is a documentary about the fight waged by former Daily Show host John Stewart, social activist John Feel, and FDNY hero Ray Pfeiffer to get health benefits and compensation for 9-11 first responders. This is the story of the grit and perseverance of a few determined individuals who fought to ensure that the thousands of responders who suffered with life-threatening and financially devastating illnesses from toxins released at ground zero after 9-11 got health care and benefits is now streaming on discovery plus in canada the film no responders left behind was directed by rob Lindsay, who joins me today as i sit here today i can't help but think what an incredible metaphor this room is for the entire process that getting health care and benefits for 9-11 first responders has come to this country was based and formed on volunteerism and those who went to 9-11 voluntarily are paying the ultimate price. How did you come across uh, this story? Well, it's interesting. Um, John Stewart was on The uh, Daily Show. He had come back to The Daily Show after he had stepped away and Trevor Noah took over. And he came on and he started sort of uh, continuing a story that he had started back in uh, 2010. And uh, that's when he joined the, the 9-11 sort of uh, fight against the government. And uh, he basically said to the, at the end of his piece, everybody out there, you know, text and yeah, hashtag worst responder to your, uh, to your congressperson. So one of our producers, Kelly Zemeckis, actually sent out a text saying, we're in Canada. I'm not really sure what we can do, but sending, you know, all the support we can from Canada. And that text ended up getting passed around. <clears throat> Excuse me, that text got passed around. And uh, she ended up, uh, someone said, you should get a hold of John Feel. And who was running the thing, uh, running the whole sort of operation. And so uh, that's how we got involved. We called up John, we heard about a story, we went down to New York and, and just kind of started following him from that point on. And that was about five years ago, right? You've been working on this for some time. Correct. Yeah. So that was five years ago. So we, we started started, and to be honest with you, we started started it as a short. That was my first thought was like, it's a really... Uh, what they're doing is really an incredible story. And John has a park uh, dedicated to those that have died since 9-11 from 9-11. Yeah. And so we went down and uh, I thought we would do a little piece on the park. And the more we started learning John's story, John Field's story, and John Stewart was there, and the more we just started learning everything that people were doing, that these guys were up to, we just realized that we need to, uh, uh, there, there's more to the story than just what, what we thought we were getting ourselves into. So, and it just kept going. And not, sadly, it took so long because their journey took so long. Mm -hmm. um, and they just kept having to go back to the you know, back to the drawing board, they would they would move the the a little bit further along, but then get a, a setback, and and so it just it was sort of this ongoing. So that's part of what our film is is just to try and capture how frustrating this process was. Well, we see John Fields uh, Park in the film several times. It's part of the thing that there's a recurring thing that happens there. They ring a bell, they make an announcement of all the people who have died since 
9-11 uh, and they ring a bell each time. It's very moving. We see it a couple of times in the film. And so I, I, I looked up. Uh, so the number that we normally think of when you think of 9-11 is about 3,000 people. It's 2,996 people who passed away on 9-11. But the death toll is so much higher than that. And we get a real sense of that in your film uh, over the course of you know, the next 20 years, thousands of more first responders have passed away, some of whom we meet in the film. So tell me a little bit about making a movie like this. You get to know some of these people and some of them, it's not a spoiler, but some of them aren't there at the end of the film. Tell me a little bit about that as a filmmaker, your relationship to the subject. Well, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, I mean, you never know who's, you know, going to in it for the long haul, so to speak. But you come into it and they're already very sick. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one in particular being Ray Pfeiffer, who is a, yeah. who's a big uh, proponent of of the bill and all the advocacy that they did. And he's just he's just, you know, probably one of the nicest human beings and, and the genuine human being we ever met. And uh, and uh, to follow along his journey and and uh, a lot of people know uh, uh Louis Alvarez, who who went with John Stewart, and he passed away shortly after they did their um, their speech in uh, their very famous that. speech. Yeah, That's where right, John Stewart famous. said, "These guys did their job." Now, eighteen years later, you do your job, which seems to me like a big turning point. But we'll talk about that. Yes, in a moment. Exactly. But that is the, it, the famous speech. It very much was a turning point. So it's very difficult, and uh, and you know, you you want to be sensitive to the families and and even though it's part of your storyline and you know uh, uh that that you you know you try and look at it from both sides from a filmmaker's perspective and from just a human being's perspective and trying to be sensitive to those needs but john Field always said this is the story like mm -hmm. this is what has happened i we we need the world to know that it's not just oh some people got sick some people are dying and literally they're dying every day and so much so you mentioned the park uh, this year, uh, uh, just closer to 9-11, just a couple of weeks ago, they had another um, uh, uh, park ceremony. Every year they have this annual, and it was the most people in a year they've ever dedicated to the thing. And that was 20 years later. Yeah. So, so you can just tell how many years that this will keep going on for, that they keep adding people that have died from 9-11 to, uh, to this wall. You're listening to my interview with No Responder Left Behind director Rob Lindsay. Watch the film now on Discovery+. Plus. Louis Alvarez uh, struck me uh, because he is a, a strong presence in the film. You, we meet him several times. Uh, uh, he looks very ill. And then uh, after he passes away, we find out he was only 53. If you want visual and and you know tangible proof that that there were people's lives who were changed forever uh that's it right there i think yeah and also we i don't i don't think we include it in the film and and but if you saw he was he was part of the bomb squad mm -hmm. and he was a big guy you you know what, what we saw is what you saw in the news uh the, the sort of uh, very much in the later stages of his illness, uh, sitting beside John Stewart, and he's very frail and very weak and stuff like that. But he was, you know, all through his life, just a big, muscular man through everything. So it's really you really got the visual in that sense of whatever. And sadly, he passed away, you know, three weeks. I'm not even sure if it was as long as three weeks, but somewhere very shortly after he did that, um, uh, he actually went right from that hearing right into hospice. Like they didn't even go back home again. They just went right, they went right to there. So that's how severely long he was. But 
I mean, he did an incredible job and, 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 you know, that was very important to him. It was important to his family. It was important to him to get the message out while he could. And, and so, uh, you know, everybody's so grateful that he was able to do that. John Feel is one of the heroes of uh, this story, as is John Stewart. Um, how important was John Stewart's presence in terms of uh, keeping the, the the wheels on the track here and making sure that uh, this fight to get health care for these first responders stayed on the tracks? Well, 100%. John Field was the quarterback. He was the he was the mastermind behind everything, and John Stewart knew that uh, and John Field together knew that John Stewart has a platform that John Field doesn't. And so they knew that that was a big part of what their strategy was going to be was how can we even John Stewart, even when they contacted him, when John Stewart contacted John Field in the first place, I hear what you're doing, come on my show, I want to give you a platform to tell your story and John being John Field uh, was I can't I'm in I'm in Washington right now. I'll send you up some people that can, uh, you know, tell the story. Uh, and that's just how John feels. So John Stewart was 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 very important in in making this uh, story that these guys have been working on. Uh, so we all saw it. You know, it, John Field was get he was on the news all the time, and he was. But John Stewart just brought it up that extra level. That uh, you know, because he included the Daily Show, went on Colbert a couple times. You know, yeah. there's a couple more places that. Uh, was he was able to spread the message and and obviously John Stewart has a big platform as well as like a big mm-hmm. following so it really helped and then when he went down at, at, at towards the end there and really you know gave it to the Congress that was as you said earlier a huge turning point. Why is it that something like providing health care for the 9-11 first responders uh, turned into such a political football? I mean you would think out of all of the issues that would go before the House and before the Senate and before Congress, that this would be an absolute gimme, an absolute no-brainer. And yet, uh, this dragged on for years. And so, how did how did that happen? So it was just it became a, literally a political football. It kept the the idea of um, helping uh, 9/11 first responders. Uh, just seemed like such a no-brainer for everybody. Every, mm-hmm. you, you ask everybody, and every even the, the even the politicians would never forget. You know, always oh, support uh, your the first responders. Yeah. But in this particular case, they were getting sick at an alarming rate, and 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 people like John Field were saying, "This is not right. They should we should be taking care. They they can no longer work. They're in their 30s, 20s. You know, some of them, uh, and or some of them maybe were in their 40s or 50s, but they can no longer work. They no longer have a livelihood. Their insurance doesn't cover anything that's happened because it's never happened before. Mm-hmm. You, the government, should help out. And then it became just this issue of almost, you know, well, yeah, we we support them, but 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 why should we pay for it? You know, someone else should be able to pay for it. And then it kept going, and they kept getting it that the. the uh, it kept getting added to different bills. Like they, they would, well, maybe we put it on here, but they kept giving them, they kept forcing them to prove that it was 9-11 that made them sick. How do I know not, how do I know you didn't get sick from something else and stuff like that? But, and that was, you know, sad and, and, and very frustrating, but, you know, obviously the more and more and more people started getting sick, they couldn't, they couldn't deny it anymore that that was the case. You're listening to my interview with Rob Lindsay. He is the director of No Responders Left Behind. It's a new documentary. You can find it on Discovery+. Plus. Today, hundreds of first responders, survivors, and families will be marching in Washington. We're here on a mission. We're helping 9-11 responders, volunteers, and survivors. 
And I know you left the business. How do you feel you made the right move? You He's fighting for people anymore. that are sick and dying. Of course he made the right move. The combination of John Feel and John Stewart was pure magic. They did their jobs. 18 years later, do yours. One of the points that the film makes is that the reason that so many people got sick at 9-11, because buildings collapse, firemen and women run into burning buildings and, and, and often don't have uh, the kind of uh, side effects that, that the first responders on 9-11 had. But it was interesting to hear uh, one of your subjects say, if you break a light bulb, you know there's mercury in the light bulb. Uh, and you should probably avoid it if you can, but it's not going to make you sick. But you break two million light bulbs at the same time and imagine the effect that that has. And then if you think about just all the other environmental things that were in those buildings that were unprecedented, and unusual, such an unusual situation, uh, that's the reason. And I thought that was a, a very interesting way of describing why so many people got sick. I think if you just think of it as one big picture, it's almost unimaginable. But think about a light bulb. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and think and about so two funny. million of them. And, and it's so funny you bring that up because every single time when he said it, it was like a light bulb went off on my head because yeah. he really painted a picture. Um, and then it's also computer screens. I, didn't, I wouldn't even mm. thought that that was the thing, but computer, yeah, everyone's desks had a computer on it. Um, and just all the different chemicals, not to mention what the building was made of and yeah. everything sort of, as they call it, a toxic soup that went in there, but it really was everything. And uh, everything at once that came down, they hadn't seen, you know, two buildings of that size come down in that magnitude. And, uh, and then the thing that was even sort of sadder slash scarier is that they knew this dust is not great. And, and when the fire trucks left this, you know, left the site, they, they had to hose down the fire trucks to get them away from the site, but not the people. It was because the fire trucks might blow it off while they were while right. they were driving down the street. So that was a big thing. They had to think, you know, wash them all down. But everybody else was getting in their skin and their eyes and their the uh, face mask that we all know today. They that was not a, a mandatory thing. Some people started wearing them just because you know just because it was uncomfortable and stuff. Yeah. But no one ever mandated that for them. So it really was a. On one sense, uh, they'd never seen this before, but. Be you know almost you would think logic would have come in to be like there's something wrong with this you know they obviously had scientists down there mm -hmm. but they couldn't convince the people in charge that and apparently one of the big things was just they wanted Wall Street to get back up and running again so that was one of the big things was just like we need to make it seem like it's safe down here so we can get the economy back up and running so that that was a huge uh, 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 wheel in, in the cog kind of thing. No responders left behind uh, the documentary. Uh, shows us some of the kind of footage that you would expect to see in a film that has 9-11, you know, as the backdrop. Uh, we see the the buildings, we see uh, a lot of the work, mostly though it focuses on the people and the, and the after effects of it. But I was really struck by one uh, particular interview uh, where one of the first responders says, you know, after the first day or so, we weren't looking for bodies anymore. We were, you'd have a, a, a long day of working on the site and you might find a tooth or a finger or something like that. And again, it's one of those uh, short kind of comments that really paints a picture uh, for you of what it was like to be in that moment and to be uh, part of that rescue operation. 
And I think that that's why a lot of uh, the men and women that work down there too have such bad PTSD on top mm. of everything, on top of just the, the physical, there's a, there's a lot of mental illnesses too, because um, because of very much that. You're listening to my interview with Rob Lindsay, director of No Responder Left Behind, streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. Everyone needed closure. Everyone wanted closure. And if that, if they could find, you know, something from a loved one, they knew that at least they could account for that person that, you know, that, that of where they were. And went, taking it even one step further, uh, one of the experts even said to us is that they went as far as um, in some autopsies, being able to identify other people's DNA in the person they were uh, doing autopsies for. And as horrific as that is, it does just show you just what, to the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Now, also just to mention something you just said there too, is that we we really made a point of, our film is has a 9-11 backdrop, but it's not a 9-11 film. It's, it's, it's very much a social advocacy film um, about these sort of men and women that went down and tried to wrong, uh, tried to right a wrong. And uh, uh, so we were very conscious of not to show too much uh, of the buildings coming down yeah. and the ground zero footage uh, for, for that reason, you know, because uh, we knew that probably a lot of people will be showing, especially the 20th anniversary that just came. Um, but uh, we, we wanted to make sure that that this story we feel goes on beyond just being a 9-11 story. It is a very uh, sort of it shows you that you can make a difference if you really believe in something, whether it's something as huge as 9-11 or even something on a more local level that, that so bringing everyone together and working together with social advocacy in that way is just, it's just, it's remarkable what they were able to do. Well, it's a Davy and Goliath, let's fight city hall kind of story. Yeah. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And so much so that they've sort of uh, um, started they put together all their how to's how they how they put it all together how, you know what what their their steps were and now they 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 sort of advise people on the national level the local level the mm -hmm. you know state and uh, uh, citywide and municipal i guess too of just this is the template of what we did and you too can do it whatever whatever degree of it is right. that you're doing and it's really it's really something uh, to see how they've it's nice that they're able to, it wasn't just helping them, it was, it can help so many other people down the road. I think mostly here in the film, you are uh, using interviews uh, to uh, push the, for the story forward, but I felt like uh, you're allowing the story to be told rather than having the interviews provide the structure of the film. And that way, uh, I liked that we got to know the characters. We got to know John Field. We got to see him interact with other people rather than just sitting him down in a room with a, a camera and a light and asking him, how did you make this happen? You actually allow us to see how he made it happen. And I think that adds a, a, a layer of depth to this that might have been uh, taken away if you had taken a different approach to making the film. Well, it's, it's, you know, thank you for saying that because that was, that was a big part of the process of, of what, of how we wanted to tell this narrative and that, and it goes back to that time of let's do a, a piece about the park mm -hmm. um, is that John, when we first showed up, you know, first of all, we're from Canada, we come down, John is, John Field is not shy to cameras. He has people, <laughs> he has news cameras in his face all the time. Yep. And he was giving us the, those beautiful sound bites that he gives everybody else. 
And I said, look, we're going to stay a little longer. We're not, we were just going to do the sort of weekend event that it was. We're going to stay a little bit longer. And we just, we kind of want to get to know you and get to know your story and stuff like that. And what happened in doing that, we stayed, to, you know, initially stayed for a week in Long Island with them. And it got to the point where he stopped giving us sound bites and started just being John and we were able to capture him. And I think he forgot that the camera's there, you know, as you need to do that kind of stuff. But it was so nice to, to hear what he was really thinking as opposed to what we thought we wanted to hear. You're listening to my interview with No Responders Left Behind director Rob Lindsay. It follows 9-11 social activists John Stewart and John Feel as they take on the U.S. government to ensure health and compensation for thousands of ailing first responders who are dying and died from toxins released at Ground Zero. Find his movie, No Responders Left Behind, on Discovery+. Plus. Rebecca Ferguson, star of Dune, joins me in this segment to talk about the new movie. Now, if you're a science fiction fan, you already know all about this giant of a science fiction novel. It is one of the classics of the genre. It won the Nebula Award for Best Novel. It is a movie that science fiction fans revere. Hollywood's been trying to turn it into a movie for a very long time. David Lynch tried in the 1980s with varied results. I don't love the movie. It's okay, uh, but it, it tries to pack too much into too short a running time. What you have here is an epic that takes some time to tell, and that's why Denis Villeneuve's new version of this has been split into two parts. Denis Villeneuve, of course, is the Canadian director behind movies like Blade Runner 2049 and Prisoners and Arrival and lots of other films that have amazing visual style and really interesting storytelling. What he has done here is cleave the story into two halves. The first comes out next weekend, and gets us about to midway in the book. And then, if this one's a giant hit, we can expect part two in the next year or so. So think sort of a Lord of the Rings-style storytelling here. If you're not familiar with the story, I'll give you a little update on what Dune is like now. Keep in mind, there's a lot of names here, so try and keep them all straight. Set 8,000 years in the future, the story focuses on someone named Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet in the film. He is the son of an aristocratic family, and possibly, just maybe, he's a prophet. His father, Duke, played by Oscar Isaac, has been bestowed stewardship of Arrakis. It's a desert planet also known as Dune. The future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. What if I'm not dead? You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. His mother, Lady Jessica, played by my guest today, Rebecca Ferguson, is part of the Bene Gesserit. That's a social, religious, and political alliance who can magically control enemies by modulating their vocal tones. Their new domain, Arrakis, is a desolate, almost inhabitable place that is home to the Freemen. That's a group of people who have lived on the planet for thousands of years. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. It's 
It's also the universe's only source of something called melange, also known as spice. It's a drug with the power to extend human life, facilitate superhuman planes of thought, and even make faster-than-light travel possible. It is, simply put, the most valuable commodity in the universe, and those who control it control everything. When the former steward of Arrakis, played by Stellan Skarsgård, who does his best impression of Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now in the movie, double-crosses the Atreides clan, Paul and his mother are left in the desert to die. Kill them all. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Only together can we stand a chance. Let's fight like demons. If they survive, it will be only because of the help of the Freeman, including characters played by Zendaya and Javier Bardem, who call Paul the Chosen One and believe he has the power to bring peace to their world. You got it? That is the story, essentially, of Dune, which will be in theaters on October 22nd. Now that you're caught up on the story, let's have a listen to my interview with Rebecca Ferguson. Will you protect our son? With my life. Why didn't you say you were a fighter? Jessica, you've been training him in the way. Do you see so little hope? A path has been laid. Let's hope he doesn't squander it. You have described reading Dune, the novel, as like doing a crossword puzzle. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder what comes out of my mouth. Um, yes, I can explain it. Um, I have never sort of been in the world of, I know that my mother and many of my friends sit and do crosswords on set. And, <laughs> and there's a way of thinking around it, right? There's a logical or... It's, it's just an intellect that you need to break up, see rhythms, mathematical, whatever it is. Reading Dune was quite dense. And I think for people who emerged into the world of science fiction, they understand worlds and catharsism and this and this planet. And it's just another picture, which not to stupefy myself, I am intelligent enough to understand it, but there's a rhythm. I think it's me highlighting the fact that people who live and breathe science fiction, they they get it at another level. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! What can you tell me about creating the character of Lady Jessica? I know that you used the book as a reference, but you also went to bloggers to see what their expert opinion about the character would be as well. I think there was a lovely mixture of Denny's story, Denny's June that he wanted to tell. That was my first of all mm -hmm. essence and core. You know, that's the person who's making the movie. And his version of Jessica made sense to me. It made sense when I when I dipped in and out of June, when I when we activated and looked at who she was back in the day, she worked for the moment of 1965 when it was written, doesn't work for the way that our future generation should, should see women. At the same time, there's no gender equality to it, you know, and it can't be for the story. If it was, it wouldn't have shook, shaken up the status quo and created drama. You know, we need the issues at hand to create the drama. Um, but yeah, I always go to blog sites. That's something I always do. I, I, 
I read what people love, what people don't love, what when they say, God, I hope they activate this. Or I think I read somewhere that that they love the hand language, the sign language. And I went back to Denny and I said, Why haven't we got this in the script? We should activate that. And he said, oh my God, I hadn't. Yes, of course we should do. And within a second, we brought that back because there's so much to tell in, in the story that is in the book. I know there's a moment when I tried to get it in, but it was too much of a scene to build. And, and if you've read the book, um, there's a moment where Jessica lands on the planet and, and the Bene Gesserit woman before has left messages in a huge orangery, a plant house. And in my head, it looked a bit like Alice in Wonderland. And when she walked, she could read messages under the leaves that were left like little pinpoints, like blind script. Um, and she could communicate and understand the connections with the women, ancestral people living there prior to her and the threats at hand. We couldn't get that in. But yes, of course, I, I, I love, I do the research, you know, but it was kind of all there already. If anything happens, will you protect Paul? My life. Why do you think that this story, which is 55 years old, uh, is still so relevant today? There are echoes of colonialism and uh, all sorts of hot button topics woven throughout. But what do you think? What is it that makes this story uh, so important for right now? I think that you just mentioned the fact that we keep on scraping the surface of ongoing topics, which we've done since medieval times back in, you know, Europe, where it's the fight of, of the power, you know, the power just changes, whether it's oil or poppy seeds, or it's spice melange, or it's survival, it's, it's, and now we live in a time where we've just messed up the planet. And, and wonderfully enough, somehow Frank describes this in his way. And I think we as humans, to be honest, Richard, we like symbolism. We like connecting. We love seeing connections. I mean, you can read things that Heidegger said back in the day or, um, you know, philosophers, that still has ripple effects of things that make sense. The question is more, what are we going to do about it? That was my interview with Rebecca Ferguson. She plays Lady Jessica in the much-anticipated big-screen version of Dune, which hits theaters on October 22nd. My guest in this segment is Elaine Taylor Plummer. She's a former actress. You've seen her in comedies like Diamond for Breakfast and Half a Sixpence. She was even a Bond girl in 1967's Casino Royale. She dropped by the show today to talk about her husband of more than 50 years, the late, great Christopher Plummer, and a new commemorative stamp issued by Canada Post in his honour. The couple met while filming Lock Up Your Daughters in 1969 and were together until the actor's death in 2021 at age 91. Here's a snippet of Christopher Plummer accepting the Academy Award in 2011 when he won his first Oscar for his role in Beginners, becoming the oldest winner of a competitive Oscar in an acting category to that date. You're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? I have a confession to make. When I first emerged from my mother's womb, I was already rehearsing my Academy thank you speech. (laughs) But it was so long ago, mercifully for you, I've forgotten it. 
Christopher Plummer is one of the greats, and as you'll find out in this interview, always maintained his connection to Canada. Here's Elaine Plummer. Congratulations on what must be a very big day. Getting a stamp is a huge honor. How are you feeling about all of this? It's sort of bittersweet. I wish he could have been here, which if the pandemic hadn't happened, he would have been because it was set a few years ago. But he did get to see it. So that was all that mattered. And he was thrilled and touched and honored. Just before I hit record, you were saying that he had said something like a stamp for an actor. I know. I know. What's happened to Canada? They don't give stamps to actors. But he bought one, so he was pretty pleased. But he said it's because I'm so old, too. They felt sorry for me. He was involved in the process all the way along. All the way along. So other than the joke about what's Canada coming to, what was his first reaction when they approached him? I think he was really very surprised. But he was very thrilled. And the fact that, that the Canadian stamp involved him was very, very nice. I mean, they just didn't say, we're putting a photograph out and it's your stamp. They said, what do you think of this? And we went through all the characters. In fact, they only added Kipling. They took something else out. I think it was Mark Antony from Stratford, but they decided to put another character. They thought it looked more interesting on the stamp. And how were they chosen? We, we see him as Prospero, as King Lear, yes. Rudyard Kipling, Captain Von Trapp, and yes. John Barrymore. Um, what was the thought process? There were so many characters to choose from. They seem to think those all look the best when they worked it out on a board, on the actual physical stamp, yes. with the heads lined up and the hats and the... And they, were, they also said, are these your fa-? They said, yes, yes. When uh, all this was going back and forth, uh, I guess that they were sending various kinds of art and various they sorts of, of pictures. Um, and, and because the stamp is, is really beautiful. What was your first reaction when you saw it? I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. I mean, I thought it would just literally be some faces and a regular stamp. I right. didn't think it would have all the tempest and the lightning and the colors and and they changed colors. It started off darker and then it evolved into that lovely color it is now. You were married for 50 years. I, 52. I, I, 52 years. Oh, what? 50. It makes me sound younger. <laughs> what? I, I mean, there is no secret to that, but I'm celebrating my sixth wedding anniversary. Are you? Congratulations. You've got a long way to go. I do. I most certainly do. We've been together for much longer than that, but six oh. years married. So this is legal now. Six years. Yes, yes, exactly. yes. 14 years before that, six That's years uh, today. Rehearsal. Yes, yes. You're listening to my interview with Elaine Plummer, wife of Christopher Plummer, talking about the new commemorative stamp issued by Canada Post in his honor. But what, uh, what a bit of advice would you give me? I think you always have to laugh. Mm. I really do think. I think that's the most important thing in a relationship is to be able to share a sense of humor and not take yourself too seriously or not be too intense. We had a very good life of just laughing, really. We had a, a very good time. I mean, ups and downs, but on yep. the whole, I wouldn't change a year. When you look at all the performances that are uh, memorialized yes. on this stamp, um, what, is, what is your memory of them? I loved Barrymore. There's a moment that comes once in a lifetime when all the stars seem to have gathered together and become one. That moment became mine once, and it was glorious while it lasted. But I let it slip away. 
because he did it in this theater where I'm sitting yes. now at the Milk. And it was, it, again, from Stratford to here to New York to everywhere. And The Tempest, of course, I think was my favorite that Des McEnough directed, which is the center of the stamp. It was a wonderful production. And they have filmed it, which is, thank God, they have. So there's a record, you know, of that. But this rough magic I hear abjure. And when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine ends upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound. I'll drown my book and there's going to be a theater museum in this theater i didn't know that yes it's so exciting and the curator came down a few months ago to look at stuff that i said please take what you want i think it would he would love it to go to yes. canada clear my house take all the hirschfields take all your war so they're thrilled and there's a wonderful space i've just seen it so that's very exciting and he knew he, you know we talked about it years ago and he this is what he wanted. So he will be forever in Canada. Canada was very important to him. He continued to work here uh, with the international success. That always he came back. Always came back. Why do you think that's so? The pull of the country, the work. He thought Stratford did wonderful work with the directors. And he loved, he loved being here. He would always say to his agent, Perry, find me work in Canada. I need to come home. It's been at least a year. We're so glad that he did, uh, considering how he helped support the Canadian film industry and television industry, and uh, of course, delivering beautiful performances at Stratford. Uh, he made uh, the industry better just uh, for lending support to it. So that's very okay. important for all of us. Indeed. Um, you say Barrymore uh, and the, the the Tempest, Prospero and the Tempest are probably your favorites. Did he have a favorite when he would look back at the 200 or more characters he played? I think he loved playing that. He loved playing Prospero. He really did. I mean, he was at the right age. It's Shakespeare's goodbye to the it's It's the whole thing. Um, and he loved it. And he, he was so wonderful in it. And he loved Barrymore, I mean, years ago, but that was just fun and naughty and he had such a good time. Is there uh, one uh, thing that we might not know about him that you could tell us? Because I have read everything. I have read the books. I have seen the movies. Is there something I knew it all? <laughs> well, <laughs> he loved dogs. And that, that does count. That yeah. counts very much. Yeah. Well, congratulations on on Thank this you. on the stamp. It's such Thank a great you. honor. It is so well deserved. It's a beautiful stamp. I will be mailing more letters. It is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank nice you very to talk much. to you. That was my interview with Elaine Plummer, wife of the late great Christopher Plummer, on the occasion of a memorial stamp release from Canada Post in his honor. Thanks to Elaine. Big thanks to Rebecca Ferguson. See her in Dune starting October 22nd in theaters everywhere. And also a big thanks to Rob Lindsay for telling us all about No Responder Left Behind, which you can see on Discovery Plus right now. My biggest thanks, of course, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay happy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.